let us pray as we, uh, we come to the telling of God's word. Father, you, uh, you speak to us in, in many ways and you speak to our hearts directly. You speak into our minds, our heart, our, our souls, Father, directly through your spirit. You also speak to us through your word. And uh, Father, we, as we come and uh, explore that here together today, uh, we pray, Father, that you would speak both from your word, uh, but also from your spirit into our lives and our hearts, that we might hear what you would say as we come and gather together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing the series that we uh, started a couple of weeks ago in regard to discipling, and particularly as we, what we're endeavouring to do for 12 or so weeks is to look at Mark's gospel and how Jesus actually took his disciples and discipled them. And the passage we're going to look at tonight, and if you've got your Bibles or your phones there, you might want to open up to, is uh, in Mark's Gospel. It's chapter 4 of Mark. And we're just reading uh, three verses there. That will be our primary focus for tonight. It's in chapter 4 and verses 10 through uh, to 12, um, which is a um, words that Jesus shared with the disciples uh, in the midst of a parable that he'd been telling. And in the beginning of the parable, he told it not only to the disciples, to, to others who had gathered there. And then he comes to these words and, uh, and then goes on then to explain the meaning of that particular parable to the, um, uh, the disciples themselves. And we'll look at briefly at that as well. But these particular words as we, we come to explore tonight. Uh, when he was alone, the twelve... And the others gathered around and asked him about the parables. And he told them that the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. That last part, of course, is a quote. It's coming from Isaiah. So Jesus called, as we've heard over the last couple of weeks, some uh, 12 very diverse uh, men from a range of different uh, backgrounds, uh, very different kind of personalities. Uh, some of them were educated, some of them were less so. Uh, some of them may have had you know, maybe some religious experience, but they were not particularly religious men in themselves, but Jesus had come and they'd heard at least some things about Jesus, we assume. And Jesus comes along as a rabbi in their minds at that time and invites them to follow him. And at this point in time, uh, at the, when Jesus first calls them to follow him, they would have had very little understanding of God and they would have had very little understanding of what God was calling them to. It would have been quite limited. And to some of them, particularly those who are fishermen, he had said to them, that they would become fishers of men. Not that they would necessarily have understood what that was going to mean. And then for the next three years, Jesus invested in their personal and spiritual and ministry formation. Such that after three years, 11 of them became the leaders of this fledging Jesus movement that's changed the world. Twelve men that were asked Paul to follow on a journey. And it was a process over time as Jesus invested in them personally 
and he prepared them for the time when he would leave them and that they would, in fact, take over and continue his mission. Of course, they had no idea when they'd responded to his call where this was all going to lead. They didn't actually, they didn't initially know him as Messiah and nor what this was going to cost him, nor what it was going to cost them. But they set out on the beginning of a journey of discovery as they began following their rabbi. And I know that there are some of you here that are not in an unlike situation to that, where you've sensed God's call upon your life, but you're not quite sure where it's going to take you. You don't know where it's all going to lead. You actually don't know what it's going to cost. You only know that God has called you to take a next step. Some of you may have a greater sense of where that's going to lead. And sometimes God reveals that to us. But there are other times when God actually doesn't always let us know what the cost or where that will take us. He wants us to follow in faith. As he, and through others, continues to invest and develop and disciple and grow us. But there may be others of you, in fact, here tonight, that you're on a discovery of even who God is. God isn't necessarily somebody that you know, but you're on a search to find him and to know him. This discipling and this leadership development of these 12 occurred as they shared life together. It was an approach that was relational, it was intentional, and it was missional. And while it did include times of some formal teaching that took place, much of the learning in this discipling process of Jesus working with the disciples took place while they lived life and it was experiential. You see, sometimes we have narrowed teaching down to just a more formal context of some expert passing on information to a student. But that was not necessarily the way that Jesus, in fact, discipled his disciples. Yes, there were times when he taught from the scriptures and he taught them to understand the scriptures. But a lot of that learning took place experientially as they journeyed together. And as they journeyed along, Jesus often drew verbal pictures. Pictures of the world around him which we call parables. And such parables are significant teaching moments. They were then and they are today teaching moments around and about the kingdom of God. On some occasions, Jesus' teachers, teaching included parables to the greater crowds. For example, the Sermon on the Mount and, and other uh, teachings that took place. But Jesus' most profound teaching was directed to his followers, to the closest disciples. Now, most of Jesus' listeners, at least, in the original audience, probably knew exactly what Jesus was saying in many of the parables as he told them. But not on every occasion. And that's one of the, this is one of the occasions in which we're looking at tonight. 
Because here he says to the disciples there in Mark 4, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But those on the outside, everything is said in parables. This particular parable, which we will look at in a moment, is actually recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. They all recorded this particular parable as Jesus explains it to his disciples. And in this case, he needed to explain its spiritual application. Because when we read it, uh, Matthew's account of this particular parable or in this particular uh, saying here, the story with the interaction with Jesus and the disciples, we find that their initial question was, why do you speak to people in parables? And so Jesus' answer is to why he, why he does speak in parables. Because he says that the secrets of the kingdom are not necessarily intended to be hidden. But rather this divine revelation can only be understood for those who are spiritually discerning. See, Jesus knew when and what times the disciples needed to learn some of these things. And as they journeyed over these three years, he continued to reveal more and more about himself, about the kingdom of God and about the future mission that they were being called to. In fact, we find in Mark's gospel, it's not until about halfway through uh, Mark's gospel in chapter 8 that they actually come to understand that he actually is the Messiah. And it's only then after then that he begins to point towards Jerusalem. And that's um, chronologically, he was not too far out from going to Jerusalem. And as he begins to speak about going to Jerusalem and the death that's following him, they still don't get it. They still don't understand it. And so it's a, a process of revelation over time spiritually that they come to understand and he says that though there are those who don't have the spiritual capacity or they're not attuned or seeking or wanting to know and for them they just don't understand it they don't get it and the crowd addressed by jesus is referred to as they or them are the kind of groups who constantly opposed him who just didn't quite get it at all Included the Pharisees, included the elders, the scribes. Um, and um, uh, Matthew tells us that it included those who, not only those who attacked him constantly and were unrepentant, but the people in the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. See, the truth that Jesus proclaims by means of the parables is for those who are open to see and understand. Secrets of the kingdom are not meant necessarily to be hidden, but they are hidden or not understood by those who are not open to the Spirit of God speaking into their lives. There is in one way, in some ways, we're at a little bit of disadvantage when we look at the, when we study the parables. You see, unlike the original hearers. Most of them were very familiar with the context and the reference points of the Jesus of the parables, and not, as we're not quite familiar with the context, we sometimes miss the point. Through our own study of, of uh, literacy con and, and culture, we we learn to understand it, but it doesn't often have the immediate impact as it did in those days. But the parables illustrate some of Jesus' most important teachings that he wanted he wanted the disciples to understand as they grew and became 
followers and disciples of his. Their importance can hardly be overestimated, the role of parables in that teaching process. There are, in fact, 46 different parables told by Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels. And they're ones that demand response from us, crucial responses from us, just as they did to those who first heard them. And Jesus based his parables on on very common everyday events of first century life as they moved around together and shared life. Agriculture, lost money, lost sheep and shepherds and cruel creditors and so on. And most of them are real life or true-to-life stories. And although not all of them, most of them had one central point. So when we read them, we've got to be careful that we don't read too much into the details with hidden meanings. It can't can be a mistake for us to look at meaning in every sentence or every single detail. If we get bogged down in the analysis of the details of the parable, we miss the central point of it. I guess that proverb that we know, uh, that we hear about, that you can't see the forest for the trees. For these were stories and examples from the world in which Jesus lived, in which he used to tell spiritual truths as a single point of comparison. And these parables show us that that Jesus was pretty fully accounted or acquainted with human life in multiple ways and means. We can see that he was knowledgeable in agriculture, he was at home in the vineyard, he was familiar with the workaday world of the farmer, the fisherman, the builder, the merchant, the manager of estates, the ministers of finance, judges, Pharisees, tax collectors, Lazarus, his poverty, yet he dined with the rich. He knows about the lives of men and women and children, the poor and the rich. And as Don Carson summarises the parables, he says, they capture the listener to make us our participant, overturning our worldview and leading us to qu- into question most of our basic values. You see, they are cleverly designed to draw us and to draw the listeners into new ways of thinking, new attitudes, new ways of acting as he reveals the nature of the kingdom of God. And it is the lesson of the parable that is most important for us. The story is not important in itself, although it may be literally true. And many details that we might expect to be included in some of these Um, parables may be left out because they're they're not necessarily important to the main message because the accent falls on the last person that's mentioned or the last uh, deed or the last saying and as I said earlier often the interpretation is given to the where where there needs an interpretation is given to the, the disciples in private and again as Andrew mentioned last week The centrepiece of Jesus' teaching is around the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. For hundreds of years, as Andrew said last week, for hundreds of years, the Jews have been expecting a decisive intervention by God to restore the glory of Israel and defeat its enemies. But when John the Baptist and then Jesus came and proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand, it was certainly what they understood that there would be some mighty way of military or political 
change that would take place. But it was a spiritual kingdom that was now growing and developing in the hearts of these men that will only find its final fulfilment in the eventual sovereign role of God when Jesus comes again and all evil is defeated. But Jesus demonstrated his authority within that kingdom. Authority over disease, over demons, over nature and supremely over sin and death. And in his preaching and in his teaching of the parables, he reveals the standards and the values of the kingdom that are often in stark uh, contrast to the values and the standards that we have in contemporary society today, their day and our day. Because these parables that Jesus told as a way of teaching his disciples, his way of developing his disciples, brilliantly illustrates the truths about God's kingdom. And it calls out a response from us. So this passage that we're looking at this, uh, tonight is found in the midst of Jesus telling the parable of the sower. The story is an important parable because it provides us with some clues about the nature of parables generally and how Jesus taught his disciples and how they're to be interpreted. This particular parable follows Jesus's, uh, is followed by Jesus' own interpretation and discussion. And so we're going to just look at it briefly as an example of how Jesus' teaching played an important part in the discipling of disciples. And it means too that for us who want to continue to grow and develop and to continue to become disciples of Jesus, that we have to be open to being teachable. It means that we need to be in situations we allow others to put input and speak into our lives. But it also means as we disciple and speak into other people's lives, that we need, as we walk alongside others, to use the everyday experiences and things that we go through and we, we, where we see Jesus at work to speak that into the lives of those that we lead. In fact, ideally, all of us should be having somebody in our life that is discipling into us. All of us should be having someone to whom we are investing in and discipling, as well as having peers that work together. This passage here is the one of the parable, of the, of the parable of the sower. And when Jesus taught this parable, parable to the sower to his Galilean audience, they literally would have seen a farmer sowing a seed in the nearby fields, probably during around the month of October. And Mark indicates that Jesus was using a floating pulpit, sitting in a boat on the side of the lake as he tells it. Jesus didn't have to explain the activities of the farmer. Perhaps even while he told a story in the distance, they could see a farmer at work sowing kernels of wheat or barley. Or maybe they would have skirted past a farm on the way to the beach, but they all would have been very familiar with farming. Some of us here will be quite familiar, others less. But farming in Jesus' day was a relatively simple process. 
The farmer in Jesus' parable takes his supply of grain out of the field in a bag that is slung around his neck and his shoulders. And the bag hung in front of him and with rhythmic steps he casts the seed in strips across the field. He wasn't concerned about the fact that some of that seed might actually fall on the paths that are surrounding the field. He wasn't concerned about the, feed, the seed that might fall in some of the shallow parts where they had limestone rocks underneath jutting through. He probably wasn't all that concerned that some of the thorn, some of them may have fallen in the ground where their thorns were. All of this was in the day, all in a day's work for a farmer. He sowed the seed over all the soil and land that was around in the field. In bygone years, that area where Jesus is teaching had been covered in dust from the frequent eruptions of, from a volcanic range. And wherever the dust settles heavily on limestone, there is land that is particularly fertile while leaving other places particularly barren where often the limestone rocks will stick up. And in any particular field, you might find rich soil, gravelly soil and rocky protrusions. And so the description that we have is, was quite commonplace and quite accurate. The farmer couldn't prevent some of the seed from falling on the hard ground and the birds coming along and picking up the seed. That was just part of farming in those days. Nor could he do anything about the limestone cropping up here and there. It was just the lay of the land. And as much as he tried to eliminate thorny weeds, he didn't have the chemicals or methods that we have today, so they kept coming back anyway. So the farmer looked forward to harvest time when he actually would be able to bring in a crop. And an average yield in those days would have been less than tenfold. So if he got 30-fold or, or even more favourably 60-fold, he would have had a bumper crop. Very occasionally he might harvest a hundredfold, which was almost unknowable. In other words, the farmer didn't notice the wheat kernels, the wheat seeds that he lost at the time of sowing. He sowed everywhere and he put his hope in the future and he waited with anticipation for the time of harvest. And friends, that's the point of this story. It's about an abundant harvest that's to come. The emphasis here is on this, the seed that is sown. In Luke's account, he calls the seed the word of God. Mark calls it merely the word. Matthew, in light of the passage from Isaiah, talks it about, calls it the message of the kingdom. The focus is the farmer has ups and downs in growing a crop. He may lose a crop, or at least part of it. In this case, three times, or, or three parts of his crop, he loses. But in the end, he reaps an abundant harvest. You know, in a similar way, I can tell you countless of stories of missionaries and evangelists and pastors and others 
who sometimes have laboured year after year after year, keenly aware that those that they are seeking to serve, those that they are seeking to reach, those that they are seeking to minister to, who may have had hardened hearts and hostile responses and there may have been dismal failure for many, many years, but convinced that the power of God and his word and the work of the Spirit, as they continue to preach and to minister and to serve, that they would consequently witness an astonishing harvest. And in some cases, in some places, decades later. You see, this parable reminds us that even in times when there's difficulty and challenging circumstances, when there are hardened hearts and when, when there's no response maybe even to the gospel for many years, that we need to persevere. I told the story this morning that when uh, Judy and I went to Broken Hill and we were pastoring there, uh, a local mayor, Peter Black, um, was... Um, well, he knew, Peter knew the scriptures really, really well, but he was very antagonistic. In fact, he was a really outright atheist and claimed to be so. And he can make life very difficult uh, for me at times and uh, certainly with the language that he used and so forth to try to provoke and things like that. But occasionally, <coughs> we hung in there and, um, and then occasion bailed him out on something and uh, he um, it was, I had a coughing fit this morning on... Came prepared tonight, and uh, he, um, uh, uh, Peter had a had to move house, <coughs> and he ended up being my neighbour. And, and as we got to know each other for a bit over those years, we're talking here in the nine, early nineteen seventies. Oh, well, sorry, early late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties. And if we got to know each other a bit, we used to have coffee every Saturday morning. We'd talk politics and, uh, and then move into areas of faith and so forth. He actually came to my farewell and spoke at my farewell when I left the hill. And I uh, kind of mentioned that during, during our, our, our interactions and so forth, he, he was no longer an atheist. He'd only become now an agnostic. But he had moved. We've con continued that relationship and kept contact with him and... Uh, he became the Member of Parliament, uh, representing that group, and when we lived in Sydney, we'd regularly go and visit and have meals with him. Uh, and over the years, we've continued to contact him and uh, share life with him, even from a distance. And then two years ago, when I was ministering in Tasmania at Ovalston, sitting in my office one day, and up, walking up along the, the pathway, I said, gee, that looks like Blackie. But he was, why would Blackie be down here? So he went to uh, the office, and the secretary came in and said, there's a bloke out here that says he knows you. Um, he's keen to come out and it was Blackie. 44 years later, Blackie came in and said, I want to talk to you about faith. Now, life had gone pretty tough for him and, um, and that he's still in Broken Hill, still there today. Um, but he, he knew I, where I was and he came all the way down so he could have that conversation. Sometimes it's decades later. Or as a funeral I took a cut last year um, for Steve Folks, who was a former um, coach of the Bulldogs. 
and uh, it was at Belmore Oval. And there was one of the player, one of the board members who came and saw me afterwards, uh, who had played with him at that time, and played for Australia. And he came to me and said, "Can I love the funeral? I loved all the things you said, and all the things you arranged, and so forth. But you could have left the religious things out." Yeah, yeah, fine, Paul. <laughs> but you know, that night when he came to me the fifth time and said the same thing, about to say, "What is it for you, with you that you need to keep coming and telling me that?" You know, you're trying to keep this really hard face or something about religion, but there's something bugging you underneath. And he opened the door. All about some of his history and disappointment and so forth, and we'd rather there. Go and talk about Jesus. Persevere. Don't give up. It's the message of here. That's what Jesus is wanting to teach these disciples. Because life's going to get pretty tough for them. This is earlier on in their journey and so forth. And this is before a lot of their attacks and the criticisms and the, the hard and hearts that they had to encounter were to come. And Jesus knew at the end of that at the end of that time, there would be abundant harvest, that they had actually become the leaders of a worldwide movement for Jesus. And he's preparing them for the, what is likely to come in the future. No matter what they go through, what circumstances they face, there's going to be an abundant harvest. And later on, of course, Jesus says, the harvest is ready. Pray for those who will go and reap the harvest. And by mentioning such details as the path and the rocky races and the patches of thorns, Jesus primarily applies this lesson of, so of the seed and the soil to those who are listening and to those who hear the message of the kingdom. That there are four different types of people who hear the message of God's word. And Matthew and Luke introduced the word heart in their version of this. Matthew says that the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart as he refers to that which is sown on the path. You see, there are times when the message of, God, of the kingdom, the word of God, reaches the heart of the listener. But before it can have any effect of all, at all, the, list, the, the evil one comes and snatches it away. We might say in one ear and out the other, or like water off a duck's back. And some people politely listen to the gospel, but they are hearers only. And sometimes there are people who can come to church or a youth group or wherever and they can hear it week after week after week after week. They just hear the words. And they don't necessarily take anything to heart. The gospel isn't precious for them. Their hearts are, are hard and like the footpath along the grain field. And they ignore God's summary, or Jesus' summary of God's law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It first appears that the seed that is sown on the rocky places gets an early start. The summer heat has been retained in the ground, and as it is gradually released, it gets colder. The sufficient rainfall makes germination possible. And the green shoots shoot up very quickly, making an impressive show. But the eyes of a good farmer can notice the difference. He knows that the appearance of the green shoots on the rocky ground is deceptive. And when the rains have ceased and the sun in the spring arises with increasing heat, 
the plants then wither because they have no roots that go down deep into the soil to supply the plants with water. And so the plants shrivel and die. Jesus speaks of the word being heard initially with joy, but since it has no root, it lasts only for a short time. And when trouble and persecution comes because of the word, then quickly falls away. Luke talks about it as a time of testing. And hardship often causes people to have second thoughts about faith. And when the time comes to stand and to pay the price, they change their interest and involvement in the faith that they once embraced with joy. And it may be because of superficiality, where super shallow persons lack conviction and courage and stability and perseverance. And they may be influenced by all kinds of teachings and fads that blow their way, and because they lack depth, their spiritual life is of passing significance. I'm reminded very strongly of some years ago of an NRL player who life was going really well with him at the time and he came to, to faith in Jesus. And uh, he just got married at the time and he was, uh, he was performing really well on the field and he got appointed to the state of origin side at the time. And uh, he connected to a church that within a two weeks had put him up on the stage as a trophy. There was no roots that had taken place. There was no investment in his life. There'd been no discipling that had taken place. There was no preparation for what was to come. And by putting him on the stage, he's making him look like a leader. And I remember it was only, and there was a lot of publicity about it. And I remember a few weeks, well, some weeks later after the State of Origin, uh, one of the State of Origin trainers was from our own club where I am. And uh, he, um, <laughs> he's not a Christian at all. And, uh, but he came to me and he said, um, Ken, can you get someone to see so-and-so? It's a different club than mine. If you're going to go see someone so-and-so, Ken, there's nothing worse than half a Christian. And later on, life didn't turn out really well for that particular player. He lost form. His marriage ended up busted up. And um, uh, lost his role in the state of origin, and um, and he just gave away all that faith and so forth that he had at that time, and uh, got into all kinds of strife and stuff. I don't blame him for that, but I do blame the church because we didn't disciple him, we didn't invest in his life. We didn't prepare him and nurture him. We didn't help him to put roots down so that when the hardships came, and they would have come anyway, he wasn't in a place for his faith to help him through that. Discipling is about helping people put their roots down. The seed that was sown amongst the thorns seems to have had a better chance for growth and development than that on the shallow soil. At first, after a period of germination, they looked quite promising and began to distinguish uh, and can't be distinguished from all the other plants. But when the sun's heat gains strength and the warmth hits the earth, the roots 
of the thorns and thistles come to life. You see, after a, a winter's rest, they are ready for a new season. And within a matter of weeks, the thorns and the thistles have overtaken the wheat plants in height. And they deprive them of moisture and soil nutrients and literally choke them to death. This is still good soil, fertile and moisture retaining. The only drawback is that the soil has other permanent residents, other roots. The seed that is sown in fertile soil with plenty of moisture must before long compete with growing and developing roots below the surface. In other words, two types of plants are struggling for a place in the sun and the type whose roots were put down first is beginning to gain upper hand. And Jesus says that this is like people who receive the seed that fell amongst the thorns. It's like the person who hears the word but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and make it unfruitful. It's like living a double life being religious on Sunday and forgetting it for the rest of the week and discovering that the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things take over and faith becomes meaningless through the week. The message of the kingdom cannot flourish and cannot bear fruit because then the interests of the world choke it out. And these people are really living a double life from the beginning. They find security in other things. It can be riches, possessions or other things. And faith gets relegated to a secondary status. And even in the end, they will lose it all. Without me having to to give you any specific example, I'm sure all of us can identify persons that we know personally who have fallen away from their faith as they have been uh, due to other priorities in their lives, squeezing matters of the kingdom to the background. How sad that is. You see, these three sketches of the field, of the possibilities, do not discourage the farmer. And just likewise, the three portrayals of people whose faith have become fruitless should not dishearten us who want others to be disciples. They are refusals to heed the message of the kingdom. They are denials of persecution and deadly snares of worldliness. On my last page. But in contrast, on contra in contrast to that, the seed that is sown in the good crop, in the good soil, produces an abundant harvest, a bumper crop. The people who in faith respond to the gospel are without number. A countless multitude. Who would have thought that these 12, although one abandoned it, but out of these 12, 11 of them 
with such diverse backgrounds, personality, very little understanding of God and his kingdom at the beginning? Would he within three years become the leaders of a movement that has absolutely changed our world for Jesus? They are the hearers and the doers of the word. They understand because their hearts are open and receptive to God's truth and to God's spirit. Their whole being, their will, their intellect, their emotions, their spirit are touched by that word and a spiritual growth takes place and the believer bears fruit and they do the will of God. So what's the main point of this parable that Jesus is seeking to teach the disciples and us? It is that the kingdom of God is proclaimed and it does cause a variety of responses amongst the people who will hear it. People will receive the message and understand it and obediently fulfill it. Others will fail to listen because of hardened hearts or a basic superficiality or a vested interest in riches or possessions or other distractions. <coughs> These people fail to bear fruit and even what they have will be taken from them. <coughs> and this parable relates to people inside the church as well as outside. That's the main point of this parable. <coughs> the one, all the details focus on this one point. The faithful proclamation of the gospel. Being on mission will never fail eventually to bring forth fruit. Producing a crop, maybe 30, maybe 60, maybe 100 times what is sown. A challenge for us is firstly, what kind of soil are we presenting to receive what God wants to speak in us? And what kind of fruit what we, may we potentially enable God to produce through us? Let me pray. Father, it's beyond our comprehension why you would even call people like us to be your disciples. But you have chosen to take people with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of personalities, all kinds of experiences to be your disciples and to carry on your mission. Help us, Father, to continue to discover more and more what it means to walk the faith in you, how that we might continue to grow to be the people you would have us to be. And as we seek to sow the news of the kingdom into the lives of others, along the way with the disappointments and the rejections and so forth, may we, Father, still look forward with anticipation for the fruit that you will bring and the harvest that will come. 
the lives that will be changed, that will be transformed with your spirit working through us. Father, may we persevere, even during the times when it gets harder, just as the disciples were called to persevere. And as we continue to learn more and more, no matter how long we've journeyed with you, as you continue to shape us, as you continue to teach us, may we increasingly become the people that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.